So good to be with you guys all again. So good to be up here. First thing I want to tell you is that it is so nice to have it warm, but I dressed very wrongly for this morning. And I just want to say I'm well hydrated. So if I start sweating through this shirt, do not be distracted. I'll be fine for the little bit of time. For the little bit of time that we have together. Anybody that knows me, that may well happen. So just don't be discouraged about that. Second, um, I want to tell you that this message um, just goes so well with what we've heard this morning is that my hope is that we're going to all leave here really encouraged. And that's yeah. the goal for this morning. That's the goal. So I wanted to just let, share with you, Linda and I, uh, you know, we've been married for 36 years and together for actually over 40 years. We've had the privilege of marrying uh, and counseling many couples, and we've had the privilege of sharing, the honor of sharing with many of you, the Antioch Marriage Encounter Group, which is just so powerful. That's been an honor of ours. And there is no question that in that time together that we benefit and that couples benefit that as we wrestle through topics and experiences. Like, one of the biggest benefits is as the men have wrestled through with the age-old question, that if a man says something in the woods and his wife is not around to hear him, is he still wrong? <laughs> think about that one for a bit. And we discovered down in my basement, the answer is yes. It is definitely still wrong. But what we found as we spent time with couples was that although they benefited from our history, although they benefited from our experiences, although they benefited from our tools, you know what we found out they needed most? Just encouragement. Just encouragement. I can't tell you how many times we have sat with a young couple and shared and seen with tears people say to us, I just need to hear that marriage can be great. So many people talk about marriage as if it's a struggle and it can be okay, maybe at the best good, but nobody talks about marriage like it can be great. And what they really needed to hear from us more than anything else is just for us to look them in the eye and say the path that you have chosen in marriage is not an easy one, but it is so worth it. It is not easy, but it is so worth it. And my goal this morning is the same. There will be some teaching and there's going to be some stories and some tools that I hope, but my main goal is simply to say this to you to this body, the path that you have chosen in following Jesus, it is not easy, but it is so worth it. Andrew's been leading us through six weeks of incredible journey, and I'm going to encourage you, um, the, the scripture that you need to follow is going to be up on the screen because I'm going to be in different places in the scripture. Please have something out to take notes, not because of what I'm going to say is great, it's just that we really believe that somewhere in here, there's something for you from God. It may be just one word that comes from it, but we're believing that God wants to encourage you this morning. So be ready to hear it and receive it and remember it and put a marker in that spot. Andrew's led us through a series, six weeks of an incredible journey, defining what it is like to be a church like home. And that does not mean, as we've explained, that we want to be a church that is homey. Actually, that is a part of our goal, but that is not what we're talking about when we want to be a church like home. What we are talking about is that we want to be home in the sense of the incredible power and joy of being a place where God can dwell. A place where the kingdom of God lives, grows, and flourishes 
a church where heaven, as the Bible talks about, touches earth. That's the home we want to be. That's what we're looking for. And this will be the final message in the series, and it's meant to do one thing and to encourage you in this truth. And the title of the message is this. There is no place like home. There simply is no place like home. The first thing I want to um, encourage you with is God's posture towards us as he calls us to be a church like home, a dwelling place for him. What is his posture as he says that to us and as he encourages us in that? And for many years as a Christian, my view of God could be explained in the interpretation of one man's encounter with Jesus, the encounter of the rich young ruler. It is a fairly well-known story, and to me, it had a fairly easy and simple interpretation and understanding. A rich young ruler approaches Jesus and asks how he can get eternal life. To me, that meant, how do I get to heaven? Jesus lists off some of the Ten Commandments, and the man replies, check, done, done those. Then Jesus says to him, go and give away all your money and give them to the poor and come follow me. Simple story, simple interpretation. If you want to get to heaven, you can't keep anything from God. Because as I had been told and taught a million times, God owns everything. There are elements of truth to that interpretation, but it is not complete. It is in a deeper dive of this exchange that I found the truth that changed my entire journey with Jesus and it changed my life forever. Let's take that deeper dive together. Mark chapter 10 starts in verse 17 in the recounting of this story as I looked, re-looked at it again. First important fact, the man came to Jesus. Jesus did not go to the man. The reason that that is important is that this man is a rich young ruler. He has everything. He has wealth. He has power. He have, has position. He has comfort. And yet, he clearly knows he doesn't have everything because it's he that initiates the conversation with Jesus and says, what more do I need? What am I missing? Second, notice in this, in verse 17, he calls, the man calls Jesus good. Now, this term that this man used for Jesus, it was almost solely used to describe and talk about the goodness that only was associated to God. This man uses a very unique term, and Jesus seems to notice it because he drills in a little bit with the man and says, hey, why did you use that term? Why did you call me good? What I believe is going on there is Jesus is looking the man in the eye and saying, you know something about who I am, don't you? You know something about who stands before you, and that's why you came to me. Jesus then lists off the rule of six of the Ten Commandments, and the man says, done. Translation, I think Jesus is saying, but religion and rules, it's not getting the job done, is it? Key point, missing in my original interpretation, comes from verse 21. Jesus loved the man. Jesus loved the man. And here's the game-changing difference in my two interpretations and the way it changed my life. You see, in my first understanding, I view Jesus like this pointing at the man, pointing at the man. I'm God. I paid a great price for you. And therefore, what I'm asking for you in return 
is that you pay it back by giving away everything that you have, and then you come follow me. I picture Jesus like this with the man. In my second interpretation, I picture him like this. You're missing something in your life, and you know it. I love you, and I have everything that you need. And I see you, son, and I see what's got you captured and so afraid every day of your life, and it's your wealth. I love you. Let go of it and come. Follow me. Everything you came for me to me for, I have it. And I have so much more. Just come and follow me. Whew. What a difference. Picturing Jesus like this to picturing Jesus like this. It is clear to me that Jesus was trying to give the man's life back to him. First interpretation is God. God demanding something from man. Second interpretation, God offering everything to man. That's a game changer. That was the life-changing impact. When I went from picturing Jesus pointing to picturing Jesus inviting and giving, when I understood that Jesus' posture toward me is never one of condemnation, it is only one of invitation, that changed everything. What exactly is Jesus inviting all of us into when he says, come with me? Let's look at just briefly. He's inviting us in. He says, in my presence is the fullness of joy, Psalm 16. I will make your righteousness like a river, Isaiah 48. You will have endless fountains of living water with me, John 7. I will give you hope that never disappoints, Romans 5. In my light, you will receive light. Psalm 39, you will in be in my counsel, you live in my counsel, in my protection, in my provision for your whole life. Psalm 2, 3, and 4, God will share his mysteries, what only he knows, with you. Corinthians 2, or 2 Corinthians, and you will taste of my glory, Titus. Wow. That's what Jesus stands before us and says, come with me. I've got it all, and even more. And he invites us into that. And I realized that my whole life I had, I had focused on the first part of Jesus' call to discipleship. And often we know this very well. When Jesus looks and says, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And all of that is true. And Jesus has every right and had every right to stop right there. And say, you want to be my disciple? I paid a great cost, and here's what it looks like. You got to, in return, deny yourself, take up your cross, and come and follow me. He could have stopped. He had every right. It would have been right and just for him to stop there, but he didn't stop there. Look what he follows up with. For whoever tries to save his life will lose it, but whoever gives up his life for me, you'll find it. And we need to remember the second part of that call, the discipleship, that promise that after the ask, here's what it takes, we receive a promise from Jesus. Here's what I'll give you. And we have to remember the promise. It's the promise that pulls us into the journey with him and a life, that, a promise that he gives that if you will follow me, you will find life. And it is a life, listen to this, that you can't find anywhere else and through any other method. 
And that promise makes all the difference in the world. See, in God's call to be a church-like home, in God's invitation to be a dwelling place for him is the invitation and the promise that in return, you will find life. That's why there's no place like home. Because of the life that is promised there. That's a beautiful picture. And it's 100% true. But I want to be really clear and honest. You won't always on the journey see and understand that life immediately. There will be times when that life looks to have missed you, when it doesn't look like you expected, and it certainly won't look as you define it. That's just the truth that you need to know. Sometimes the journey is just really long and really hard. In week number four of our series, Andrew said this. I love this, and I wrote this down. See, this is why you need to write stuff down. (laughs) Jesus does not minimize our trials and struggles. He does not say, hey, they're no big deal. Instead, he says, no, they're a very big deal. I am just a bigger deal. I love that truth. I love that truth. In your journey of a dwell, being a play, dwelling place for God, you will find out sometimes that feel like you're only experiencing the denying part. You're only experiencing the cross-carrying part. You're only experiencing the loss, and the life just feels like that part of the promise, that just passed you by completely. And I hope it will encourage you to know that the 12 original disciples of Jesus had some of those same concerns and questions about the journey with Jesus. See, in John chapter 6, we see a major turning point of Jesus' teaching and his ministry. Jesus has been preaching the gospel. He's been healing. He's been making others great. Then he feeds the 5,000. Then he even walks on water. See, he's preaching the gospel with miracles. And the miracle part of the gospel, that always draws a big crowd. But it's not all about the miracles. But as Jesus continued the teaching of the crowd, he starts to pull back the curtain on what it means to be a follower of Jesus and what it will take to live a kingdom where heaven touches earth. And when he starts to open up that part and he tells the rest of the gospel, some of the people didn't like what they heard. Some of the people just didn't like that part. Jesus says to the crowd in John 6, 29, you want to do the work of God? This is the work of God. Believe in me. And he gets bolder. You think Moses was great? He was. But I'm far greater. He gave you bread from heaven or manna from heaven, and that was a miracle. I am the literal bread from heaven. I'm even greater than what Moses gave you. And then he gets downright offensive. And if you want to live... You have to eat the bread of heaven and drink the blood of heaven. How does the crowd feel now about Jesus? John chapter 6, 66 says this. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Notice, not just the crowd, but some of the disciples said, this is just too hard. Twelve of the eleven of which the whole kingdom advancement will be built on asked He asked this, Jesus asked this of them, you do not want to go also, do you? Hard question from Jesus. 
And he looks at the disciples, and Peter responds, Lord, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And in Peter's response, Peter confirms two truths. Two truths. Again, Andrew in part five of our series gave us this warning. He said, religion tells us that you can't get close enough to Jesus. Culture tells us that even if you get close to him, he's just not enough. Those are two lies we will fight our whole life. Religion says you can't get close enough. These are both lies the enemy will consistently bombard you with. Each of these truths would take hours to fully uh, uncover. And I simply want to testify to you as one who is decades ahead of most of you in this journey. I want you to hear this one thing. You can be closer to Jesus than you can even imagine. You can be closer to Jesus than you can even imagine. For decades, I walked with God, loving him from a distance because I believed that was all that was possible. Sometimes I'll share with you the rest of the journey, but for today, I just want to say that the greatest shift in my life has been the realization of how close we can be to Jesus and to God. How in love we can be with Jesus and with God. And just that statement is gonna make some people really uncomfortable, even Christians, because <laughs> it sounds a little bit too touchy-feely. But the power, it's in the love. That's where the power is. Religion will say to you, you can't be close enough to Jesus. I testify to you from the scriptures, you can be so close to Jesus that you can hear his voice. You can be so close to Jesus that you'll know that voice. You can be so close to Jesus that a friend of mine who told me after suffering one of the greatest losses I've ever heard, he said, Jesus is so close to me, I can feel his breath on my shoulders. <laughs> you can be so close that a young man named Anatoly, an attractive young man whose lifestyle was just leading him astray, gets caught in a fire and burned in an unrecognizable way that I have never seen somebody deformed as Anatoly is. I was at camp with him one time, had to help him button his shirt because he has no hands. I could go into it, but he's the most disfigured man I've ever seen. But he testified this. I am better now with Jesus than I was before without Jesus. <laughs> I can't explain that. But that's his testimony. And... He just posted a little while ago, a beautiful young woman accepted his invitation to get married, fulfilled the dream that he thought he had lost. That's how close we can be to Jesus. Culture, on the other hand, will tell you that Jesus is not enough. You need to choose another path if you want to find fulfillment and happiness and the things that you need. And Jesus warned us of this in Mark 4.19. But the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and desire for other things enter in, they choke me out, and it becomes unfruitful. The culture and Satan have a relentless lie. It was in the garden, it's still that lie today. God is keeping the good stuff from you, and he's keeping you from the good stuff. But here is the truth of the heart of God all through the scriptures. It's in 1 Samuel 12, 21, and is all through the scriptures when God says, don't leave me. You will go after futile things, things that cannot profit or deliver because they are futile. God is not worried about competition. He's saying one thing. 
I'm trying to prevent you from chasing things that can never deliver anything of what they promise. And again, this is a full message, but know that the heart of God throughout the scriptures is I'm not keeping you from the good stuff. I'm just keeping you from chasing, I'm making a race, starting a race that has no finish line. And I have everything you need. For today, it must be enough to say that I have chased some of those lies. And in every case, I found them to be disappointing and empty. In every case, I found that everything that God warned me about came true. I've had friends that have chased those lies. And I want to bring one in particular that it was just really, God put somebody in my life when we were young. In fact, we lived here, and we both had a career path that was almost exactly the same. It was crazy. And I left my company, started a, uh, I left Dow Chemical Company, started my company. He left his company, which he was very successful, went to Harvard, got his finance degree. And our paths in life were just incredibly parallel as we shared life. And he was one of the few guys, now actually the only guy, that I shared my income with. So we were on this kind of competitive journey. And then I gave my life to Jesus. And I started living differently. And he was loving me. But here was his comments about me as I decided to turn a different path in business. Z-Man, you could have been something. Hard to hear. He didn't mean it mean. Still hurt. You could have been something. When I started to choose a different path with my money, he shared it with his friends in New York City. And he called me one night and he said, you know what we call you? He goes, we call you a unicorn. Because people that give away their money like that are living in a fantasy world. I know. Sometimes, if you want to be honest, I started questioning what I was doing. I did. Fast forward about six years. He was very successful. He got a job. He actually got published on the front of the Wall Street Journal. He had moved. He was in London at the time, but he got a job in New York, going to move back to New York. And he called me, and it, was, it would have been uh, 5 o'clock my time, so it was about 11 or 12 his time. And I was like, why are you in your office? He said, did you see the journal? And I said, no, I didn't. He goes, I was on the front page. I said, hey, congratulations. I said, why are you still in the office? This is what he said to me. I make more money now than I ever have. I'm more afraid of money than I've ever been in my life. I said, are you ready to change? No. Your answer can't be the answer. Fast forward in life, and he challenged me about my marriage. See, monogamy can't work, Steve. And he told me about all the things that I was missing as he traveled the world. Fast forward 25 years, and I stepped off from a plane from Ukraine, and he texted me. He said, can you give me a call? 25 years of journey. And here's what he said. I had to call you and tell you you're right. I've missed everything. I've missed it in marriage. I've missed it in business. My money doesn't fulfill, and I just needed to call you and tell you you're right. That's not to testify to me. It's to testify that sometimes in the journey, God knows what he's talking about. But it's not always evident right up front, is it? There's no other place for you, like Peter said, except with Jesus. But it still leaves us with this reality, doesn't it? There are really hard times in the journey. Times where we cannot feel the life that is promised us through the scriptures. That's just the truth. What do we do in those times? What's the answer to do in those times? Peter's honest response 
to Jesus is, there's no other place to go. So here's what he says, basically. Anchor deep. Anchor deep. Max Licato tells a story, I think it's a really powerful story, about being a rookie sail, uh, sailor, and he bought a new sailboat, and it's his first time he's seeing a storm. There's a hurricane coming to where he had his boat docked. So he went and did what made the most sense to him. He grabbed every line that he could possibly do. He tied that boat to the dock, to the dock poles, to every cleat that he could find. It was tied up, he said, with 12, 15 lines. So, so, so that's how he was going to protect it from the storm. Then an old sailor walked up to him and said, you don't want to do that. And he said, why? He said, you tie down to that many points, this storm will rip your boat to pieces. He said, well, what do I do? Take, away, take the boat away from the dock. Pick a deep anchor. Anchor to one point, And let the boat ride that anchor through the storm. Everything about your boat surviving depends on what you're anchored to. <laughs> That's what Peter's response says. Anchor during storms of temptation will come and tie. Don't tie. We'll be tempted to tie to a bunch of other things and tie to multiple things and try to tie onto anything. And Peter's answer and the truth from the scriptures is we'll try to tie to our pleasure. We'll try to tie to our celebrity. We'll try to tie to our comfort. We'll try to tie to all these things. And Jesus calls out and says, don't. Just anchor to me and I will hold, I promise. Nothing else will hold. You see, there's no place like home because home is where you will find the only anchor that will hold you in life's storms. And every life has storms. I want to look at one more testimony for the truth that you want to live with God as a dwelling place for God and that there's no place like home. I want to look at the life of Paul. And when I really need to be encouraged, I read Paul's letter, second letter to Timothy, and his letter to the Ephesians, to the Philippi. Let me give you some context for these two letters, and I'm going to go a little bit fast. Paul was originally named Saul. Saul was a Roman citizen, so he had privilege. Saul was an educated person, so he had prestige. Saul was a leader, so he had power, and Saul was a person of means, so he had comfort and he had pleasure. That's who Saul was. Saul was a religious man, and he was zealous for God. And Paul was absolutely convinced that by tracking down and killing Christians, he was protecting and working for God. And so that's what he did. Saul was responsible for killing Christian men. Most likely, he was also responsible for killing Christian women and Christian children, all in the name of protecting God. Saul, while on a journey to find and kill more Christians, has an encounter with Jesus. And this changes Saul. It changes everything. And his name is changed from Saul to Paul. God uses Paul to write about 60% of the New Testament. Side note. If God uses, forgives, and loves a man who killed men, women, and children, I'm betting that there's nothing that you have done in your life that can keep you from loving you and using you mightily as well. After Saul becomes Paul, he lives an amazing tra life traveling the known world, testifying to Jesus as a starting as the Messiah, he starts churches revealing the truth that because Jesus, because of Jesus, now no one is separated from God, not Jew, not Roman, not Gentile. No one is now separated from the life of God. Paul, God loves everybody. Paul, at the end of his life, becomes a big pain to the Romans, big pain to the religious leaders of the day. There's a new emperor in town named Nero, 
a fire is started in Rome. Nero probably started it himself, but blames Paul. And there begins to persecute the Christians and kill them in the most unspeakable ways. It still doesn't stop them because instead Christianity grows, the kingdom fires up, and it, it absolutely flourishes under that persecution. Nero blames Paul and arrests Paul, and he puts Paul under a death sentence. And Paul's letter to Timothy and the letter to Philippians are both written from prison, and they are written with Paul knowing that he is under a death sentence. Timothy is the man Paul loved most in the world. It says in the scriptures that he loved him like his son. And Philippi, the Philippians, were the people Paul, the church that Paul loved most in the world. So these two letters are the letters to the people that he loved most in the world. So here's the setting for these two letters. They are letters written by a man who once hated Christians and now is the leader of the Christians. Once was rich and now is poor. Once was powerful in the culture and now is despised by the culture. Once was a man of position and comfort and now is in prison and chained. His life, Paul was in hunted, jailed, stoned, whipped within inches of his life. He has been shipwrecked and stake met, and now he's about to be executed for one crime, loving Jesus. But Paul is also loved deeply by so many of the people that he served. And these letters are written to, to some of them. They're written to the man that he loved like a son and his closest friends in the world. They are written knowing that whatever he writes in these letters to these people that he loved most in the world will be the last thing that they ever hear from him. They are written personally. I believe that he never had a concept that we'd be studying them 2,000 years later. They were just personal letters to the people that he loved the most in the world. So what we read in these letters on the deathbed testimony of a man who has lost everything in the world, riches, power, position, comfort, and now in his life, all for following Jesus. And we're about to read the last words of his life to the people he loved most. And I read these letters and realize Paul's knowing he's going to die. He has no reason to fake it. And therefore, whatever he writes in these letters, it must be true. So I want to know, what does he say after all of this experience? And in my humanness and in my flesh, I must think that he's got to say to these people, turn back. Don't do this. It was way too costly. Look at what has happened to me. Or at the very least, be careful. Be more cautious. Be more prudent. Go a little slower than I did. But that's not what we see at all. Instead, in these personal letters, Paul writes to his son, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Jesus Christ. Suffer hardship along with me. It is a trustworthy statement. If we die with him, we will also live with him. All of this letter is summed up in the first couple of verses of the first chapter when Paul says, for this reason, I remind you, Timothy, to fan the flame. This father to a son who's about to die did not say pull back. Instead, he said, fan that flame. And I read this and I'm like, that's amazing. That's amazing. And Fan the flame, hope sounds familiar. It was from week five. Don't hold back was what Paul, uh, Andrew taught us. To his supporters, to their friends, to his most loving community, to Paul's Antioch Indy, 
he says this. And I, was, I would say these things I want you to read. I just want you to listen to this. And I think the only reasonable way to picture Paul is not with his head slumped and sad and afraid. I ask you to picture this letter as the only reasonable way that it could have possibly said. But whatever things were gained to me, I now count them as loss for the sake of Christ. In fact, I count all things as lost compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I count the loss of all things, and I count them as table scraps compared to what I gain in Christ. And I want to be found in him, having a righteousness that's not from rules, it's not from the law, it's just from faith in Jesus. The faith that comes only from God by faith. And I want to know him. And I want to know the power of his resurrection. And I want to know the fellowship of his suffering. I want to be conformed to his death so that I can attain the resurrection of the dead. Not that I have attained it yet, people. I have not become perfect yet. But I'll tell you what I am doing. I'm pressing forward to grab hold of that for which Jesus first grabbed me. And I do one other thing. I don't look backwards at all. I only look forward because there's only one thing worth living for, and that is that upward call that Jesus has Amen. for us and for you. That's how he ends his life. And I'm like, wow. I want to die with that kind of confidence and that kind of power. And if I'm going to, I have to live with that kind of purpose. That's what Jesus invites us into. It's not easy, but it has this promise with it. There will be no regrets. At the end, there will be no regrets. I'm going to end with this story, an illustration. And I think it's a real-life illustration, at least the best way that I can summarize this. I got invited to go whitewater rafting one time. Never been whitewater rafting. In West Virginia, there is a river. It's called the New. It's a very medium level of whitewater rafting. But for six weeks out of the year, they open up a dam that is above the new, that, a dam that's like 100 feet high and all these chutes, and it turns the new into one of the hardest whitewater rafting anywhere in the world. So for six weeks, you can go to the Gali and you can ride whitewater that you will not see anyplace else. And so we were invited to the Gali and I went. I'd never been whitewater rafting before. <laughs> You're supposed to be experienced. I wasn't. We stepped into that river, and we went to get training, and, our, and our, our guides were counseling us, and they were saying, four of us went, and they were starting to tell us all the things that could happen on the river and that if you get caught in the rapids, hold your feet up because if your feet get caught, they'll get caught between the stones. The force of the water will hold you down, and you will drown. Interesting. If once you go through a rapid, if you get down, the compression will be so great that it will hold you down. Do not fight it. Wait for it to spit you out. Otherwise, you will wear yourself out and you will drown. Another interesting fact. And they kept telling us all these things. And finally, one of my friends said, I can't do it. I'm leaving. There was an alternative to go to the new, lower down the river, away from the gully, and he did. We went the gully. And true to the story, there's a very first rapid that you have to shoot out, and then you have to hit this lane. And if you miss that lane, you get stuck in the middle of the rapids. 
we missed that lane. Our guide was using some really choice language to describe us along the way and telling us how long this day was going to be, but our raft was stuck in the middle of some of the most raging white water you have ever seen in your life, and I was scared to death. We tied the line from the roast, and there were about four other rafts that they were pulling up the back of the line, and we were out on this butt rock trying to pull up the back of the raft, and the guide said, man, when this thing breaks loose, you better get in that raft because everybody's on their own. That's how they cared for you. Everybody's on their own, so we're pulling up. I'm the last man in that robe. The raft pops up, and everybody hops in the raft, and I fall off the back. And now I'm starting to go down a rapid. And I tuck my feet up like you cannot believe, because <laughs> I am so scared of my feet getting caught. And they try to pull me back in the boat, and then they push me off because we were about to hit a rock. We go down this rapid, and I have never seen water like this, and I hit that compression, and I am telling you, it held me under for whatever, what felt like forever. And when I popped up, they had created a lifeline with rafts against the shore, and there were a bunch of other guides screaming at me, you better swim, you blah, 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 because if you miss this catch, you'll do all the rapids on your own. And I swam like crazy, and they picked me up out of the water, and I went, and that was the first rapid of the day. <laughs> Every other rapid was like that all day long. Later that night, we were by a campfire sitting around and we were telling our stories. We were banged up, we were scarred, we were exhausted, and we just talked all day long about what we had seen on the golly. And my friend who went to the noose didn't say a word all night. Except at the end of the night, we looked with such great regret. I should have gone to golly. This invite, it's an invite to the golly. You will get scratched up, beat up, and you will be weary. But at the end, you will have such stories to tell, like Paul, and no regrets, none. I'm encouraging you, take the golly. You won't regret it. It's the ride of a lifetime. But in the end, what Jesus invites us into is life, and that's why there's no place like home. He invites us into a place, an anchor that will hold in every storm. That's why there's no place like home. And he invites us into a ride of a lifetime. And at the end of it, we will be banged up. We will be sore. We will be tired. But we will, like Paul, say, I do it all over again, except even more. That's why there's no place like home.